<laughs> okay, so um, welcome to Blown Spot. This is a uh, co-host show with Christopher Rudder and Christopher Stulley. Two Chris's don't make a right, but... But three rights make a left, just remember that. <laughs> <laughs> today we're going to talk about in the Blown Spot, uh, Blown Spot the historical significance of Ric Flair's three major company title runs. You have the NWA, the WCW, and the WWF, known today as the WWE. And I want to look at this from a historical standpoint, talking about where Ric Flair came from, how he started getting into his first title run, and then let's look at the significance of how it impacted wrestling from that point forward. So, flashback. 1970, Ric Flair, as he was known at that point in time, is, atten is attending the University of Minnesota. He had been a childhood fan of wrestling, and um, uh, through failed uh, failing his scholarship because of grades, because as we all know, Ric Flair lo loves to fuck a party, so he lost his football scholarship, and it was time to look at how he's going to actually go forward. He's hugely disappointed his parents, He's been a lifelong fan of wrestling, and one of his closest personal friends is the Hall of Famer, Ken Patera, and also Vern Gagne. These are two people that Ric Flair grew up knowing and was actually a college roommate with Ken Patera at the University of Minnesota. So 1971, they go to Vern Gagne's wrestling camp. Now, this is in the good old days, as you would say it, where they would absolutely beat the motherfucking shit out of you to see if you would come back the next day, and the more they beat the fuck out of you, and you came back the next day, they knew they had somebody who had the heart for the game. And he's in class with um, Ken Patero, uh, he's in, uh, in class with one of the Briscoes, He's in class with Vern Gagne, and he's also in class and meeting Dusty Rhodes for the first time. And uh, most people don't know that whenever Dusty first started, he started in the northern Midwest, in the Minneapolis Territory, which at that time was known as the AWA. And uh, Ric Flair was such a huge fan of Dusty Rhodes that he actually wanted his name, to, he wanted his gimmick to be Rambling Rusty Rhodes. Huh. And Dusty had to talk him out of it and say, look, man, just be Ric Flair. Just be yourself. Don't try to copy somebody else. So you're talking about the early 70s. This is from 1971 to 1976 before the plane crash. Right. For those of you who don't know, in 1977, um, there was a cross-country flight going from, I believe it was the Indianapolis airport, to California. And then they were going to hop to Hawaii. Well, in the flight, the pilot was in such a rush that they only gave enough fuel 
that as weather conditions actually happened, he didn't have enough fuel to finish the last 15 minutes of the flight. And this is on the way back from California to Minnesota. So um, first engine goes out, second engine goes out, they crash. Ric Flair ends up with a broken back in three different places. Five out of six people on this Cessna flight died. The only survivor was Ric Flair. Now prior to that, we had Ric Flair trying to find himself. He's wrestling in the uh, uh, northern organization, like I said, called the AWA. They weren't able to find a gimmick for him. He was such a fanboy of Dusty uh, that he wasn't able to separate himself from the Dusty Rhodes image that he wanted to create. Then you go to the plane crash. He breaks his back. He goes through about a year of rehab. And he comes out as one of actually one of the first bodybuilder type wrestlers of the late 70s and he goes to the mid-atlantic area now this is the time during the nwa days when they were ruled by give or take 19 territories ranging from the carolinas to san francisco carol uh, california he pops back up in the mid-atlantic area uh, which is North and South Carolina. That's why everybody think Rick, thinks that Ric Flair's home is Charlotte, North Carolina. It's not. Right. He grew up, he grew up in Minnesota. Um, but he shows back up. He's gone through so much rehab. He went from, in his roommate days of Ken Patera, he was a power lifter to the size of 300 fucking pounds. Whenever he shows back up in the mid-Atlantic area, beginning to build the nature boy persona, he was only 220 pounds. After the plane wreck, he only weighed 165 pounds. So you're talking about a weight loss difference of 150 pounds, regaining the muscle to put on another 80 pounds. And outside of people like Tony Atlas and Rocky Maivia, there weren't too many bodybuilder types in those day and age. Nope, they were, and they were people was either my size or people that were just overweight. Put together, put uh, not only put together in a particular kind of way, we're being able to show off a double biceps pose. That's the way he came out after the wreck. Before the wreck, he was like Dusty Rhodes. He was 300 pounds of fucking flabby. But he could work. So, um, coming out after the wreck, rehabbing, he drops the AWA because of the time that he spent with the Vern Gagne, goes to the Mid-Atlantic area, which is North and South Carolina primarily, and begins working on what we know now as the Nature Boy. Now, what he did was he built on the Nature Boy Buddy Rogers from the 1950s and 60s. The blonde hair, mm -hmm. the body, talking about the women, talking about his championship, his money, I'm wearing a Rolex, I got this robe. He starts building on this character. And then you come into four or five years of him battling severely with Greg the Hammer Valentine, Ricky Steamboat, Dusty Rhodes behind the scene being the booker, obviously. 
but he's watching this kid who idolized Dusty from the very beginning. You're talking about Blackjack fucking Lonza, Blackjack fucking Mulligan. You're talking about Jimmy Superfly Snuka before he did the dive off the cage. This is the mid-Atlantic area. Right. You're talking about nothing but Hall of Famers from beginning to end. Jake the Snake Roberts, all of these guys. So he starts building on the Nature Boy persona. And at this point, we haven't got the whole full-on presentation of wheeling and dealing, kiss-stealing, jet-flying, limousine-riding, son-of-a-gun, the nature boy. But it's on its way. I almost feel like i got to give a woo. (laughs) Yeah, right? I almost feel like I have to give a woo right there. (laughs) That's, That's the thing. You cannot say that. And I MC a couple of events here in my local area. I do a, uh, a burlesque show at a strip club, and I MC a bike night. And whenever I come in and I see that the crowd is looking a little bit flat, I do the Nature Boy limousine riding, jet flying, fucking kiss stealing, willing and dealing, son of a gun, woo! And the whole fucking crowd does it with me. <laughs> And there's, there's only one person in the history of America that has a super fucking excited superlative attached to his name of woo. <laughs> That's what you get with the nature boy. And it's because of what he built from starting in 1971 and dealing with his first title change, which was with Harley Race in 1978. And he'll be the first person to tell you he was not ready. The company was ready. The NWA itself, they were ready from a change for for a change from Harley Race being the old standby, the toughest son of a bitch you ever met. If you ever a hand if you ever shook Harley Race's hand, which I had a chance to do in nineteen eighty three, he could grab your hand and break all of your fingers if he wanted to. Oh, you're lucky. When I met Harley Race, I got to take Harley Race's chops. And I'll tell you what, we always hear Ric Flair's chops or even in the independence, I met some hard choppers that would argue about like their knife edges and, and how deadly they are. There has nothing on this planet that has ever hit me harder than a Harley Race fucking knife edge chop. And you dealt with him whenever, whenever he was 60. I know. You know? So. <laughs> I know. That, that, that's the thing that, you know, for anybody who isn't a true historian of the sport or a true fan, the only big champ you know is Roman Reigns. Let me tell you, there is nobody who has ever stepped into the squared circle that is a true of a hard ass, as true of a hard man, as true of somebody who put people over the top in the business. He groomed Ric Flair for two years in the middle of battling with Dusty Rhodes, in the middle of battling with the Funks, both Dory and Terry, in the middle of battling with the Briscoe brothers. He put his eye on Ric Flair and said, that's the guy. If we can just get him to tighten some stuff up, that's the guy. And the NWA organization, the presidents and territorial leaders as they were at that time, you're talking circa 78 and 79, they're like, okay, if Harley puts a stamp on him, then okay, I guess we have somebody. 
1978, he gets his first title. And he drops it in less than six months later back to Harley. He wasn't ready, and he'll be the first person to tell you. Back then, the NWA champion, with those 17 or 19 territories that ran from the Carolinas to San Francisco, it was the NWA champion's job to run from one territory to the next, one or two weeks at a time, take down the babyface, or take down the top heel, and completely work the crowd in a way that made them come back for the next two weeks before he moved on to the next state. That's all the NWA champion's job was to do, was to make it believable that he could lose the title, but he somehow or another kept a hold of it. Right. And um, so from 78 to 81... Well, before you before you go there, before you go there, I I, I do have to I do have to touch on this uh, with with Flair not being ready for the first title. You know, um, comparatively, I don't think anybody, uh, truthfully, in the, in the business of professional wrestling, especially if you've only been in for a couple years or or whatever else, especially when you're first starting to establish your character, your gimmick, your abilities, um, and and Flair obviously he was going through an identity crisis all the way up until he the nature boy and right. even then he you know, yeah it wasn't until after the plane crash yeah. right so i i wouldn't even count those as years in ring uh as far as formulating his his style his belief who he is wrestler uh because of the fact that you know one year after a plane crash he creates rick flair and wins a championship i remember uh you wild when when first doing youth gone wild in, 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 Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania wrestling yeah, okay. alliance yeah. uh back in back in 97 uh we were put over for the P, Pennsylvania wrestling alliance tag team championship it was a complete fluke that we were even put over we were supposed to take on uh Trent Acid and Billy Real who were the tag team champions and we were the job we were supposed to get our asses handed to us but unfortunately right. one of the members of the tag team the champions no showed don't know the reason to this day. I still don't know the reason. Okay. Um, so Billy real right. had to tag up with a alternate partner because of the situation. The book at then powers to be decided. You all takes the title. Tony and I, they're might, putting the trap on, 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 yeah. on us okay. as, as kind of a punishment for the no show. Tony and I were shocked. We were stunned. We were we were two we were two years in the business. You know what I mean? At this point, like we weren't we weren't ready. We knew we weren't. Oh, ready. you weren't ready. And yeah. and yeah, no way. We won those straps, and it was, it was it's kind of like a dream come true. It really was. You know, when we when we walked back into the locker room with those titles, both of us knew like we're not getting these titles to the next show. Like they're either going to strip them from us was, or we're dropping them out. Was that fun? Was that on the call with the referee at the count, or what? no? We were we were told in the locker room uh, okay. as as time went on and and uh, and Billy's partner didn't show up. Uh, finally, the the Booker turned around. and He said, "Fuck it, I'm tired of this. You've gone wild over in 15." And okay, you know, it, so you got a 15 minute call. Got a 15 minute okay. call. We we already knew the the end. So now we now and it, we we were literally a match before our match. So I'm sitting down with Billy and Billy's partner for the night, Mr. Arrogance, uh, 
figuring out the match, you know, while while being stunned like, dude, I'm winning a title tonight. Holy shit. But, yeah, you know, like how do you call your spots when you know you're getting ready to get the strap when you're not ready for it? Right. And like I'm, you really want to Randy Rose everything. And I'm know? as I'm yeah. as green as the next door neighbor's lawn. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I know I'm not set green. for this. Yeah, you know, and we had a decent match. It, it went out, went over. All right. But Tony and I knew like my tag team partner, uh, Mike Thorne, his real name's Tony. Um, we knew uh, it's like, OK, we're we're jobbing this title the next show. There's there's. No way they're keeping the belt on us. <laughs> I'll be damned if they didn't keep the title on us up until the Federation closed. We never lost the PW team titles. But that's neither here nor there. The, the Federation closed a couple months later. Um, the, problem, okay. the problem is, the, the historically, the problem is, is that Tony and I were not ready for those belts. We were not ready for the responsibility of being the draw in the tag team division of this federation. And and that's what a lot of people miss out on. They don't understand that it's now your job to put butts in the seats. Exactly. We weren't ready for it in any way, shape, we ready for the responsibility. And quite honestly, up in, up in our noggins, psychology-wise, we weren't ready for the ego that it unfortunately brought. We both took egos from it. And after PWA oh, closed, yeah. we had... We, yeah. There was many times well, where we had to be re-educated. <laughs> let me ask, let me ask you this for those for those people who uh, outside of the business as fans. Now, just so everybody knows, Chris Stoling has thousands of hours and thousands of hundreds of thousands of miles under his belt inside the squared circle that I never got a chance to get because I got fast tracked because I was the best friend of the promoter in southern Indiana, Jerry Lawler's area. Whenever Jerry Lawler closed up shop, there was a big vacant hole, and uh, Eric was like, bro, and at this point in time, this is pre-Goldberg, pre-Stone Cold, any of that shit, you're talking about a six-foot-one, 260-pound guy who shaves his head and has a goatee. And he was like, we can put you over. So within three weeks of being in camp with Dutch Mantel, I put matches, and I was no way ready. Right. But what I had on the flip side was because I wasn't ready for the business as it was, I was a fighter, so I started doing MMA. I started doing hook-and-shoot matches. So I have hundreds of hours and thousands of miles under my belt that Stoli doesn't have, in a mm -hmm. fighting situation in that way. So we both have different aspects of the business. But whenever you're talking about that ego boost that you guys went through, mm -hmm. was there ever – the organization closed up, so you maybe not uh, didn't actually go through it like the Midnight Express or Rock and Roll Express or anything like that, were the old – guard came in and really went snug with you guys oh it happened. you're gonna finish but you're gonna go really fucking hard and snug did you guys how much did you go through with that a lot a lot and it, in fact it, it okay. followed me beyond it, i don't I can't speak for i can't speak for thorn uh because after you've gone wild split uh you know and we had a bad falling out and i moved to colorado and i started my solo career in colorado 
And now Thorne went to Oklahoma and Texas, right? No, no, no. He st- he stayed in the uh, the Northeast Territories. He he was in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware. Okay, okay. And uh, I went to the Midwest okay. and and started really making a name for myself out there. And uh, with RMCW, with AWA, with uh, uh, Mile High Pro Wrestling, you know, uh, that's where my career really, right. really took off. And the problem is, it's like I was. That's keeping... where the uh, flying elbow. That's where the. Uh... Uh, fiery elbow pad came in yeah right? yeah <laughs> stupid shit okay. like that yeah. and uh <laughs> and uh you know i was paying attention to to, to thorns uh now i remember back in those days there was no internet with friends sending me tapes and shit right. you know friends that i still had in the east coast sending me tapes and shit and i would watch his matches and then i'd watch my own matches and you know I've, i'm i've always been my own worst critic but i would see that I was miles, figuratively and literally, above where Thorne was. And during the time that he and I were, you as, know... As far as being a worker, for our listeners, as far as being a worker, you were able to technically work a match, whether it was, whether it was called behind the curtain or on the fly, you were miles ahead of his ability. Right, right, right. At, the, at that point. And unfortunately, that... that fucking made my ego that much worse and you know uh unfortunately i started getting into rocky mountain championship wrestling with some other old school veterans you know uh that people like uh outlaw randy taylor uh and uh and mm-hmm. robert amador and uh you know we we had mr usa would show up once in a while and and fucking people like that and they saw the ego that i had they they had talent they saw that I had ability but unfortunately i had I had, for lack of a better term, I had the Shawn Michaels syndrome. I knew. How and, and for people good who I aren't in, in the know, whenever you're dealing with behind the curtain deals and the old veterans are able to see this young punks, uh, for lack of a better uh, definition of it, this young guy's huge ego without having to work what they think is the miles and the ranks to be able to actually have that ego then you really get put into some really snug situations where people are really smashing the grab. Well, the two thing the two things that happened that that really changed my outlook was number one, I did take major beatings. There there was there was a lot of humbling mm-hmm. receipts that I that I took, putting me back into place. And, <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't just like physical. It was also like dress downs. Like I remember a match I did. This right. one this one wasn't so much uh, ego. But it was because I, it was the first time my mother was in the crowd. It was the first time I was ever Ooh. performing in front of my mother. And I jobbed. You know, I, it's not like I, I to go over. I jobbed. But, I mean, I wanted to have okay. I wanted to have the match of the night because it's in front of my mother. But, I mean, like, I didn't give a fuck mm-hmm. about anybody else in the show except for me and Prodigy, who I was wrestling that night, because my mother's in the crowd. And I want her walking away going, holy shit, my son can work. Right. So we were opening match. We had the honors. We were the opening match. The first. So you're jerking the curtain. You were jerking gotcha. the curtain. The first spot we inside. I'm, fucking, you know, I, I fucking <laughs> slingshot over the top rope, landing on him. We're on the outside and we're hitting oh. high spot after high spot. And I'm selling. I mean, it's not. It's not like you know modern day spot wrestling where nobody's selling shit. We're selling shit out of each other, but we put on. A fucking clinic of a match, right? And finally, the one, two, three. He pins me. It's over. 
we leave, we go back in the back locker room. All of a sudden, understand, outlaw Randy Taylor, aka he was one of the doinks. Uh-huh. He was one of the doinks in the WWE as well. I right. love. He yeah. is. He's one of my best friends. He here. was doink number two, actually. Right. That is correct. Yeah, he is one of my best friends. I talk to him religiously. The man is a saint. He is my brother. I love him to this day, but I will never forget that match where I come from the back and I'm my chest is out to you know three miles. You know, yeah, yeah, you're miles. all blown up. Yeah. No, no, not just because I'm blown up, because I'm proud. Like I know I fucking put on a my mother. And all of a sudden, my, yeah. that air was let out when Glennie grabbed me by the collar, hauled my ass against the <laughs> wall, and chewed me for 25 minutes about overshadowing the rest of the show, setting the bar too goddamn high. You never go outside in an How opening can everybody match. Follow? Yeah. Yep, you know, he, he fucking dressed me down six ways from Sunday. <laughs> and, 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 and that's that's the uh, Jim Cornette school of thought, uh, thought uh, which is the, uh, whether you like him or not, Corny is incredibly uh, knowledgeable about how it works. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, taking that dress down from somebody like that, um, that will either ingratiate you into the business or give you a chip on your shoulder so how'd you come out of it i uh no i had a chip on my shoulder the day of you know what i mean like fuck him who you know how dare you fucking put your hands on me you know who the fuck are you it's like what do you fucking know kind of deal yeah it wasn't so much like what do you know it was it was it wasn't so much like the disrespect of wrestling or the arrogance of the philadelphian in me you know, the street kid, it's like, fucking, right. I'll knock you on your ass. Don't put your fucking hands on me. You know, deal. But right. after after the show was over and I went home and I thought about it, and it's like, you know what? He's right. Shouldn't have done it. I know the reasons why I did it. But it was, it was selfish of me to do that. And that was really the catalyst point was when I went back to training and I saw, you know, Randy there. I walked up, I shook his hand, and I apologized. And I said, be right and that's where that's really where i started taking the the journey to not letting my ego dictate my career but being the guy who thought about the business and the importance of the show over my own spot in it and uh that perfect segue and that literally yeah, changed that, that literally exactly. changed my career that that that's a, a perfect segue because that's exactly what we're talking about with at that point in time, in 1978, whenever Ric Flair was the Mid-Atlantic champion and also the Mid-Atlantic tag team champion with Ricky fucking Steamboat, he was a dual champion. And NWA decides, because Harley Race says this kid's got it, they go ahead and put the strap on him. Mm-hmm. And he starts working the territories and it's a ego gone wild instead of taking care of the business situation. So he only holds the strap for about six months. And then he goes back to the mid-Atlantic area. He bounces between the Carolinas. And at that time, it was known as Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um, he bounces back and forth between those two, keeping the regional belts. He was the Georgia heavyweight champion. He was also the Mid-Atlantic heavyweight champion. 
Right. He carried the tag titles with Steamboat and carried the tag titles for a little bit with Greg the Hammer Valentine also. And so he's working himself into learning to work for the business, not work for the ego, also at the same time coming up with the most ultimate ego we have all ever fucking known outside of Hulk Hogan. <laughs> So you're dealing, you know? but the difference, but the difference between Flair and Hogan was Flair's ego was a work, was for the business, right? It was for the yeah. business. It Hogan, on the, the other business. hand, yeah. <laughs> sorry, go ahead. And and, and, and yeah, and, and Hogan, and, and that's a different conversation. But at this time, Ric Flair is learning how to work the ego, to talk in the third person. He's starting to come up with the. Jet flying, limo riding, wheeling and dealing, kiss stealing, son of a gun. It's working. It's Woo! on its Sorry, way. Sorry, I had to give it. I, you, keep, you keep using the goddamn right? line. You I got to use do it. it. <laughs> you just can't do it without a woo, baby. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's on its way. And him and Steamboat, him and Valentine, and also with Dusty Rhodes as the booker, they are working Broadway's. And they were working Broadways for the champ to keep the belt at the very at, at by the by the by the hair of a cunt. He is keeping the belt. Side note. Of, side note for people: Broadways is a lost fucking art. God, that's I, a one-hour match. Well, it's not just a one-hour match. It, it it goes to time limit. It could be a thirty or fifteen minute. But Broadways is right. there's no winner, there's no loser. It went to the time limit. Every match has a time right. limit, and if you, it's always over before the time limit is over. There used to be so much story used in Broadways that furthered, yes. uh, further careers, furthered story arcs, further drama of the match. It is a lost art; it needs to come back. Sorry, I'll let you continue. To throw that yeah, in. No, you were mentioning no, Broadway. Yeah, no yeah, because the perfect segue to that is is recently in an interview, Hulk Hogan was able to say that. Back in the early days, whenever Flair first came to the WWF at that time, at that point in time, Ric Flair had worked hundreds of Broadways, and Hulk Hogan had never worked one. Mm -hmm. So whenever people are comparing them shoulder to shoulder, you have to understand the art, and you have to understand the athleticism. The reason people inside the business are... are, are uh, are saying that Ric Flair would be able to hold a main event with a broom is because he is able to work and sell. He was always able to sell. Whoever the local good guy or whoever the local bad guy champion was, for the next three years after he lost the strap back to Harley Race from 1978 to 81, he went everywhere in the territories working with the face, the baby faces and the heels of the area, whoever held the strap, working broadways with those guys, figuring out the best way with crowd manipulation, crowd psychology, the psychology of the buildup, working the promo, and now going into 1981, and we see the flair for the gold chase of Ric Flair versus Harley Race, Number two, this is 1981. Ric Flair and Harley Race, during the course of a year, worked 186 
one-hour Broadways. Okay, now for, for everybody just to sit back and just think about it for a second, there's 365 days in a year. Now I want you to get up, pick up your TV, and slam it around for the next fucking hour every other fucking day. <laughs> okay. It's just like I'm. It's just like I'm laughing about like putting uh putting on a mask clinic with a broom. Uh, it thought it made me think of the old right. sa- the old statement: Ric Flair uh, could uh, could do a match with the Invisible Man and put him over, and make it believable, and put him over. Now here's the, here's the trick: Imagine having your flat screen TV and working a one hour match with it every other day, but putting your TV up and still being able to watch it. Yep. He didn't break it. He was becoming that much of an artist. So for the Flair of the Gold. 1981, this chase, Turner Entertainment hasn't come in. It's still the NWA. It's still Georgia Championship Wrestling. You still have the Freebirds in Texas. You still have Dusty Rhodes in the Carolinas. You still have Bob Backlund in fucking New York. The Flair for the Gold Chase is a one-year event that the NWA put on. We're going to put you guys in matches. And here's the thing. For anybody who knows insider information or if you think you're smart about the wrestling business, these guys not only worked one year straight of house matches, they worked about a third of them as dark matches for the belt. Yep. Rehearsing and working and working and working. So that way they could get to the 1981, and this is before pay-per-view, the 1981 in the Omni in Atlanta is the first time we see the beginning of the Four Horsemen. It's the first time we see the jet riding, limo riding, kiss stealing, son of a gun, woo woo, Ric Flair. <laughs> okay, this is whenever we see him coming out in the Armani suits, the alligator fucking, the fucking Rolex. I fucking ride in a limo that's 30 feet long so I can put all the women I want to fuck in it. Come ride Space Mountain. That's whenever you see the beginning of Ric Flair. And that's 1981. That's the the, uh, uh, Flair for the gold chase with him and Harley Race. And Harley officially puts him over. He doesn't bow out. Harley is entirely too much of a hard motherfucker to bow out from anything. But he knows when time is up. Mm-hmm. He knows whenever he took the belt off of Dory Funk, his seven years that he had running after that, he had a certain time limit, and his home base was St. Louis, Missouri. Now, at this time, Ric Flair's home base has now moved from Minneapolis, Minnesota. The AWA is a long-forgotten deal. His home base is Georgia, actually. he's The Omni is his home hotel, even though he's working a lot still out of the Carolinas. Which is why now, whenever Ric Flair is announced, especially whenever they're in Charlotte, North Carolina, his hometown, Charlotte, he fucking, he, he didn't live in fucking Charlotte, North Carolina until fucking like 1999. <laughs> okay? After he so... <laughs> named his daughter after it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's perception and they're selling, Okay. And so now that three-year span from winning the belt the first time, coming back for the flair for the gold, chasing down Harley, getting the belt, 
Now it's on to him and Dusty. Now we're talking about from 1981 to 1983, a short span in 1985. He picks it back up again all the way to 1991. And we're talking about the heyday of the 1980s NWA. We're talking about the birth of the Four Horsemen. If you're around any wrestling fan and you hold up four fingers, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, all of them, that picture comes to mind because of what was developed. The only way to take the story better was let's make it the best group of the best group of the best group of the best workers who could put on the most heat, work the best match, work broadways, all four of the motherfuckers in, in the Four Horsemen, the original Four Horsemen, could all work a Broadway any given night of the week. Any given night of the week. And they could put anybody over. That's the reason we ended up with Magnum TA. That's the reason we ended up with Ronnie Garvin. That's the reason we ended up with Name them during the 1980s. Yeah. So 1981, he gets the belt back, works it till 1983, drops it to Dusty. <clears throat> Dusty, of course, is a main eventer and can draw with, or he's like Andre the Giant. He can draw without a belt. So the NWA is left with a decision. Now, in, uh, Dusty is the main booker for a lot of the big tele television territories. So do we want Dusty to keep the belt because he's over? Or do we want him to keep working everywhere and let someone else carry the strap to make all of the other territories bigger? And this is a huge diversion from what the NWA did for 40, almost 50 years previous to that. Mm -hmm. They let someone else be a main eventer while another main eventer carried the strap. So they were able to have two main eventers going at the same time, Dusty booking and Rick working. And Rick putting everybody over in every territory. Now, if you look at it now, and if you look at the uh, the way the WWE presents him, the 16-time world championship <laughs> title holder, actually the technical count is 24. But the WWE lost, doesn't recognize certain titles. That's why they exactly don't. because he lost the strap twice and they had to go back. Uh, had to have Carlos Colon come over to lose it to him here. He lost the strap twice in Brazil. He lost the strap twice in uh, uh, Japan with Antonio Inaki. Uh, so there's six extra title losses and and bringbacks that don't get counted. Mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't include the uh, um, the inter-title challenge that he also had with Bob Backlund um, and Mil Mascaras. Um, so you're talking 24 total total championships. And going into 1985, the beginning of the Four Horsemen, now you're bringing in Ronnie Garvin. It's the birth of the Road Warriors. Dusty Rhodes off of the broken leg. You, you've heard America. You put America on hard times, brother. And now Dusty Rhodes and his family were starving, motherfucker. And all of these stories going on. And Ric Flair in the background wearing the Armanis and the Rolex and all of this shit. You got the birth of the Four Horsemen. You got the Road Warriors, the Rock and Roll Express, the Midnight Express. You have 
all of this talent and the Freebirds are coming up with the Von Erics from Texas to Georgia Championship Wrestling. And Ric Flair is able to carry the strap with all of this, damn near losing it every night, damn near losing it every television taping, damn near losing it every time another baby face is brought in. And he's able, he's able to carry it, dropping it a couple times, but basically holding it from 1983 to 1990 before we change from the NWA to the WCW, which is where we start to see the death of the territory days. That is true, but I, I, I do have to state one thing, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to state an unpopular yeah, opinion. Now, this is a personal opinion, but it's an unpopular opinion. I love Dusty Rhodes. I do. American Dream all day. God rest his soul. The guy was a legend in the business. I would never take away his legacy. But as far as Ric Flair, and especially the, the uh, pivotal days of Ric Flair's feuding and, and everything else, mm-hmm. to me... The highlight for Rick wasn't Dusty uh, Rhodes versus Flair. To me, it will always be Flair Steamboat. Okay, so that's what we're getting to next. Yep. Yes. Okay. Cool. <laughs> so uh, uh, during 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 uh, the eighties, you get to the end of the eighties. You have the Flair for the gold, and then you have American Stampede, and this runs. From 1986 to 1989. This is basically the death of the NWA, beginning of the WCW, but it is the heyday of Ric Flair dropping Dusty because he's already beat him too many times. We've already gone through the American Stampede and all the steel cage matches. Mm-hmm. And now we deal with the Mid Atlantic old rivalries with Greg the Hammer Valentine and Ricky Steamboat. Greg the Hammer is an entire chapter by itself because Greg the Hammer was an incredibly snug, violent technician. <laughs> You're putting it nicely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's the most that's the that's the best way I can put it. But him and Steamboat, you're talking about now you have two guys in the room, two guys in the ring who could make that match with the broom handle and put them over. And you're talking about two guys who are able to cha- trade the knife edges, trade the fucking, you know, the the, uh, 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 the the drag overs, trading all of the bumps off the rope, going out into the crowd, coming back in, fucking working with color and working a storyline and being able to work the mic. Ricky Steamboat was able to bring up all of the fans in the Carolinas and Florida and through, uh, you know, all the way over to Oklahoma, pretty much, mm-hmm. and, and bring up all of the fucking babyface lovers and get them all on board with Ricky the Dragon. That's the birth of the Dragon persona. Mm-hmm. And then in the meantime, you have Ric Flair really zeroing in. This is now the third rendition of the Four Horsemen. Now we have... Um, um, uh, Blackjack Mulligan's son, Barry Windham, in the group, as well as Lex Luger. And now you also have Steam on the scene. So you're working these Hall of Fame, classic, one-hour Broadways, six nights a fucking week. 
By the way, for the for the the younger audiences that are listening, when he mentions Sting, he means the Surfer Boy gimmick, not the crow that most people yes. know nowadays. Yeah, yeah, the old the old painted face with the fucking Surfer Boy haircut and everything. The yeah. old Sting. <laughs> and uh, so he's working these matches and doing everything he can to save. At this point in time, everything he's doing is to save Crockett Promotions. Right. It's on its way out. And uh, because of bad management, Dusty's no longer the booker. They pulled him into New York. He's working independently or Florida. He, uh, um, uh, so you're, you have the group, you have the nucleus of the four horsemen. You still have Arn Anderson and Tully and Flair. But now they're changing out parts. Now you have Barry Windham, and now you have Lex Luger, and they're not all holding belts. It's only Flair, and it's his rivalry with Ricky Steamboat. And you're talking about, whenever, whenever you, you deal with historians, you're, you're talking about what is roughly 20 months, almost two full years. But if you were to, able to look at their matches individually, it would look like a decades worth of work yeah because of the matches these guys had the way that they were able to call in ring and this is whenever flair and steamboat both since we're focusing on flair i'll keep it on that this is whenever flair is able to call in ring on the spot high spot working with the ref you call it behind the fucking curtain we're going to come out we have an hour to fill in and flair's fucking calling the whole fucking match and put the steamboat over the whole goddamn time. Well, they, and they worked until the last 30 seconds of the match, or they worked the Broadway, that he's able to pull out the win or it's the draw. And it's night after night after night after night for almost two years straight. And that, that's, because... where gonna, that's where I was going to go. It's like, I didn't, I didn't want to jump ahead of you there. But both of them had worked each other so much so often, especially on the fly and got to know each other so well in fact they used the same referee more often than not even the referee knew it so well yes. that they could they by the end right. of the feud they could go out and not say one word to each other and do the it whole was match. eye motion head movements they knew what was coming next they didn't even have to call the match that's it. everything it was so preordained because they had done it so many times and for two years now, imagine this today for anybody who's a modern wrestling fan. Imagine Roman Reigns and Daniel Bryan working the same match for two years. All of a sudden, i got to get used to the restroom. Right? <laughs> Sorry, bathroom match. <laughs> first thing that comes to my mind with those two names, bathroom match. Sorry, garbage. Yeah. No. You know? Oh, okay, cool. I can go take a piss. No. These guys kept everybody glued. For two years, the same match, the same outcome, over and over and over again. Outside of, um, I'd have to say Jerry Lawler and Austin Idol, or the Freebirds versus the Von Erics, or the Funk Brothers having their own feud. Or Kevin Sullivan versus Dusty Rhodes whenever Kevin Sullivan was doing the whole Satan worship thing <laughs> in Florida. Outside of those five premises, nothing ever worked as long as that did. Nothing. 
Nothing. There's nothing you can bring up. And, it, and if you were to try to do that today, outside of Stone Cold versus Vince, Vince McMahon, there is nothing that could do that. Because they were able to work the matches in such an electric way. So many spots, so many high spots, so many outside the ring moments, so much color in every match. Bringing the referee in, bringing in fucking J.J. Dillon, bringing in Magnum T.A., Bring, you know, putting all these guys over in the meantime, while we're working a cage, while we're working a fucking barbed wire match, all of this shit. There's, you could not do that with any two people on the roster right now if your life depended on it. I think that's a uh, topic of conversation for another show, though, because I, I, I think we, I think if we really dug down in the. Uh... In the at least the attitude era on up, we could probably come up with at least a handful of people might have there, been able. Yeah, to there's do six it. people from the attitude area, uh, attitude era that you could do that with six people. Yeah. But as far as that carrying over to today, you could bring Ric Flair and Steamboat in their prime to today's AEW or WWE, and they would blow the fucking top off of the roof. Oh, without question. Without question. Without a doubt. So, now we're talking about the close of the NWA. And, and now we're bringing, now we're ushering in the WCW. Which I will, I will go on record right now and say, I'm sorry. I, 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 <laughs> I have no love, I have no love for WCW. WCW. So, the WCW. Go ahead, bro. WCW, uh, to me, they, I know a lot of people give uh, Vince a lot of shit but wcw built its career off of the backs of old wwf superstars and did not showcase their true talents in any way shape or form like the the up and covers like the the cruiserweights and the doors or their mid quarters no, they, they, they were all just gimmicks yeah. they, they were all just gimmicks you never showcased the talent that you truly had which would have exploded the wrestling scene had you utilized them instead of t- just stealing uh, Vince's aging uh, uh, 80s era wrestlers and giving them the spotlight. I've never had respect for WCW because WCW buried a lot of talent that could have been. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I just had to say that. Yeah, Mark, this is a break point for Edmonton. Hang on. Oh, okay. Oh, he's a holding. He's a holding. Sorry about that. As soon as, we, as soon as we brought up the bathroom match, I had to go take a leak. Um, <laughs> see that's but, <laughs> see, see that somebody turned on a WCW tape at the main event. Right? He had to go potty. If that's psychological, yeah, exactly. Um, so now we're ushering in the beginning of the WCW. The NWA days are over. The territories are dying. Vince McMahon is buying up everything. So you either have New York. Or you have Southern-style wrestling. And because of 
Ted Turner buying out the program and uh, creating WCW, which later turned into the Monday Night Wars about six years after the, after the point, the only two flag bearers left in the company. At this point in time, Macho Man has already moved off. They've already flashed out Stone Cold. They've already pissed off Dusty. He's given up the book. He's still there, but he's not an integral part. So you have Ric Flair and Sting. <clears throat> and for better or for worse, the WCW days, especially from 1991 to 1994, pre-Monday Night War times, um, Ric Flair did everything that Harley and Dusty did for him to make Sting who he, who he could possibly be. Whenever you, whenever you watch any replays of any of those old matches from the WCW days, and this is completely discounting Lex Luger because Lex Luger was a slug. He yeah. was a body, and they were able to put him over because of the body a couple of times but he was not able to actually work the caliber of matches, especially at this point in time in wrestling history whenever you're dealing with the difference of New York or Southern-style wrestling, okay? So you have Ric Flair and Sting. And whenever you're looking at those replays, you see the figure four leg lock going on, and Sting sits up, and he does the King Kong pound, and oh! Rick Flair is fucking coaching him during those moments to do that, to get over on the crowd. He is grooming his successor live in front of people, and people don't even realize it because at that time, it was either you loved wrestling or you liked WWE. You want to watch a bunch of cartoon motherfucker or you want to see real wrestling. But the only holdovers were really... Flair and Sting. Right. They tried to do a couple re-editions of the Four Horsemen. This is whenever you get Luger into the Horsemen, you get Wyndham back. Uh, Sting even does a crossover and, and comes into the Horsemen for a minute. But from 91 to 95, the beginning of the Monday Night Wars, WCW is completely controlled and carried by Ric Flair, styling and profiling. Everybody comes and goes. They even try to bring back Steamboat to try to recapture magic. And while it works for a little while, because we've already done it for a decade, it's short-lived. This is the beginning of time whenever fans are starting to smarten up a little bit. It's pre-internet, but we're starting to get a little bit smarter. Right. So you can't bring back these feuds. So now you get to see Ric Flair doing these six-man tag matches with him and the Road Warriors versus, or I'm sorry, him and, and two guys from the Four Horsemen versus Dusty and the Road Warriors. This is five years of that shit, right? Right. And even though the belt is now bigger and more magnificent, it's not the 10 pounds of gold that he carried for 10 years. It's this big monstrosity of a belt, which is awesome looking, but they have to put that out front because the caliber of competition 
the caliber of names, the caliber of faces, the, cal the, the people within the organization who are able to still work those broadways or still able to work the crowd. Harley Race is gone. Dusty's gone. Ronnie Garvin's already burnt out. Magnum TA's had the wreck. Fucking the Road Warriors are on their way to New York. You've got Tommy Rich coming back, being fucking old and fat, talking shit. <laughs> <laughs> now you just made me think so, about my own career. I got one more left in me. Excuse me while I drink this boat of gravy. <laughs> so, you, you've got you've got Crockett Promotions along with Ted Turner putting the weight of the entire world on Rick. And this is whenever the hair comes off from being long. Now it's short. He's got that crazy bob going on the new belt he still has the the robes and everything the gimmick is still there but the caliber of competition is no longer and this is about a six-year stretch this is, a, this is about the time also where flair the character did kind of mature a little bit it, it's still before he went completely nutball but you you saw the character yeah. of nature boy rick flair literally become the veteran yeah he is now the veteran leader out of the locker room he is the person who's able to open the show mid the show or close the show no matter what he's the guy who's put in the spotlight and he's mature enough to handle no matter where his position is even if they're fucking up other than the two title runs that sting had whoever else they put the strap on he takes a back seat and is mature enough to think that this is better for the business because we have to beat New York. Right. Which is WWE, for those of you who don't know, back in those days. So this is whenever we get title runs from Ronnie Garvin, uh, fucking Ron, Ron Simmons, who don't, I'm not discounting him at all, but at the time that he got the strap, he was not a world heavyweight champion. No he, fucking way. He, he, again, was one of those people. Like, he had the right body, he had the right build, he had the right abilities. Right. He, he just right was not following. mature yeah. enough yet to handle right. the responsibility of carrying the company. So in, in WCW, this is actually where you see something that gets overlooked a lot, in, in my point of view, is that now you start to see the beginning of... You see the end of tag teams like Rock and Roll and Midnight Express, but you see they move on to New York so Road Warriors don't count. But you also see the beginning of Harlem Heat. You also see the beginning of the Dirty White Boys. You also see this is where the beginning of like this was a tag team, tag team rebirth. Because the solo scene was so diluted. Because it was only Flair or Sting who could really carry the flag. Flying Brian Pillman and the Z-Man. Yeah! <laughs> right. You know, the Hollywood Blondes, fucking Stone Cold and fucking Brian Pillman. That was the best time Stone Cold ever had, was whenever he tagged up with him. Right, they put the straps on him. Wasn't Stone this Cold, is that though. time. Wasn't Stone Cold, though. It was stunning, Steve oh. Austin. Stunning. Yeah. I Steve Austin from Hollywood with a Texas accent. Figure that the fuck out. <laughs> and uh, still having the Texas state on uh tattooed on it. Yeah. 
<laughs> but he's from Hollywood. Yeah, he's still got, yeah, you know. So they had no idea what they, what they were really wanting to do. The only thing that mattered was as long as Ric Flair or Sting showed up on TV, then that's where we got our ratings from. And this is the end of WCW. This is the, well, not the end, I'm sorry, but this is the beginning of the end of WCW before we go into the Monday Night Wars. Now, in 1991, Ric Flair had a contract negotiation go wrong with Crocker Promotions before Turner bought it out and turned it into WCW. This is the first time that we see Ric Flair actually jump ship. He was so fucking loyal. He was such a goddamn soldier that no matter what the company was going through, because he was hand in pocket with Dusty, hand in pocket with Dick Murdoch, hand in pocket with Crocker, he would not leave even though it was obviously the best career choice. So they put him into this position where we're not going to re-sign your contract, but we want you to work at this pay-per-view called Clash of Champions. And you're going to do it in a cage, and you're going to do it with Sting. Right. There's no contract in place, and Vince McMahon calls up and says, hey, you can win the Royal Rumble, and get the strap here in the WWE. Now, this is pre-recorded, okay? This is not live TV like we're used to seeing with Raw and Monday Nitro from, like, 97 to 2001. Right. So this is all pre-recorded. So 1991-ish, late 91, Macho Man's already made the jump to New York. Hogan, of course, has obviously been there the whole time. Sting is kind of like backpedaling, he doesn't know exactly what to do because the Flair's not going to be there. Who's he going to work off of? The Ultimate Warrior's already in the WWE. That's his old tag team partner. Right. So how are we going to really work? Lex Luger and him are friends. This doesn't really seem to be making a lot of sense. And then the next thing you know, with the WCW strap on his fucking shoulder, he shows up in New York for the fucking pay-per-view for the Royal Rumble, predecessor to the King of the Ring at that time, and wins it and gets his title shot and takes the belt while he still has the WCW strap. Now, he gave it back yeah. to Ted Turner. He went ahead and gave it back because, you know, they had been friends and blah, blah, blah. But he shows up on the scene in New York. This is the old, this is before WWE. For everybody who doesn't know, this is still WWF days. This is whenever Bret Hart is on the come. This is whenever Yokozuna is there. This is whenever Lex Luger is about ready to do the Great American Tour. This is... um, Oh, God, the Great uh, American Tour. (laughs) You have all of these gimmicks going on, and the one thing that New York needed... Is the fucking Lex Express. Yeah, the Lex Express. (laughs) The one thing that New York needed to put them over the top was this old-school wrestling legend to come in both with the strap and then take the strap. Which is where I will argue the point, uh, because I know we're going to get into the argument later, but I'm going to put it out there now. This, to me, is the most important 
reign of Ric Flair's career. Because this he trans the, transcended both is, companies. And he really This put, is the seminal moment. This is, this is what's a seminal about moment. to happen in wrestling. This is a seminal moment, but at the time, you got to think about it, at the time, WCW was better than than a uh, over-glorified independent. Uh, Turner no, put a lot of yeah. money in it, but at this point, it was an over-glorified independent. And Ric Flair showing up in WWF with the WCW World Heavyweight title and winning the WWF World Heavyweight title while holding that title legitimized both companies. And he held the strap and then won the strap during a all-out tournament. Mm -hmm. So he was able to go through everybody, rung by rung, mid-card, top-card, main eventers, and take it down. So while it's the most overlooked, historically, title run of his time, at this point in time, I believe it was counted as number 12 or 13, of his titles. Right. Um, you're talking about one of the most seminal moments ever that takes the WWF into the Attitude Era. It moves them forward. It takes them past cartoon characters because now we got a real wrestling guy who will bleed, who doesn't just have a character, a cartoon character. He's styling, profiling. He's limo riding. Jeff Lyon. Kiss Steeler, son of a gun. Woo! Ric Flair, <laughs> motherfucker. And but, he's but, in here holding both straps. And that that's why I say this is the most pivotal uh, 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 title reign of his whole entire career because look at professional wrestling. Look at the now, Monday, look at the Monday Night now, Wars. The, look at ECW. Look at professional wrestling. Hey, look at AEW and, and, and uh, Ring of Honor and all them. None of it exists. None of it. I, I, I put my, I, I'll stand, I'll die on this Without hill. that crossover, none of it exists. Without Flair yeah. holding both yeah. titles at that time, none of it would mm -hmm. have exist. Because, because before then, it was just territory shit. Yep. You were just moving from Oklahoma to Illinois. You are just moving from Pennsylvania to Georgia. He combined it all. And he was the first one to do it. And you're talking about on the scene, he goes through Randy Savage. He goes through Hulk Hogan. Steamboat at the end of his career. He goes through Big Boss Man. You name him. British Bulldog, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels. All of them. He goes through all of them in one tournament. Holding his strap from fucking Georgia and picking up the new one from fucking New York. <laughs> now Vince jobbed him. And didn't let him hold the strap for too long because obviously they wanted Brett to be the face right. at that point in time, which is totally cool. I get it. But nobody else, if you were to try to do that with Shawn Michaels, move Shawn Michaels from the WWF to NWA and try to do that and make it go over. Try to do that with the British Bulldog. Try to do name them. Try to do it. And now, it's not good. I would I would argue the Michaels. I would argue the Michaels one, and it's not because I'm a Michaels. Well, because mark. he's such a worker. Well, it, it's because he's a great it, worker, well, it, but it's I, not just it's not just because I'm a Michaels mark. Ric Flair himself recognizes Shawn Michaels as the guy who could replace Ric Flair. 
which is why when Flair retired, but, uh, wanted his retirement match, he wanted he requested that it was Michaels. So I would argue the point that it, I think Michaels took, could have done it. it. It took 10 years of seeing Sean go through everything that he went through before Flair acknowledged that. True. I'm. I'm not so, saying. I'm not saying if you if we took Michaels in the uh, 1995 managed by fucking uh, managed yeah. by well 91 he was still a kid bouncing around in the Midnight Rockers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was still AWA. Yeah. It, so it, 95, 96. You know, if if, you know, if you're talking about the egotistical Sean on drugs and partying, no, no, not at all. If you're talking about the the veteran, like the exact level that Ric Flair was at at the time. Yeah, Mike could have done it. That's why that closeout match was such, and and hopefully it's looked back upon by people who aren't just total fucking, you know, marks like you and me. Whenever it comes to something like that, that seeing Brett, seeing Sean, and Ric Flair do a closeout match like that, even though Flair is fifteen years past his fucking prime. The fact that they're able to pull off a 45-minute fucking show and close it out the way that they did, and there's so much emotion going on, and this is a fast-forward for everybody, but the only person who could have done that since Stone Cold is out of the game had to be Sean. Had to be. There's no other person who could come close mm-hmm. to being this styling and profiling, willing and dealing, kiss stealing. Woo, son of a gun. Ah, oh, you fucked it up on me. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Bastard. <laughs> I'm all there for there's the synchronization. <laughs> there, there's only one other guy, really. And, and, you know, and that's another conversation. But so you're, you're talking about Ric Flair coming up from Georgia to New York, carrying both fucking straps putting Vince McMahon into a situation where now the territories are gone. Now it's the Monday Night Wars. Okay? So, the Road Warriors, even though they're a draw, Hawk is out of his fucking mind, so we can't put them in front. Jake the Snake is, obviously, he's already been... Portrayed at that point in time as a fucking crackhead. We can't put him out in front. Brett lost his fucking mind. We can't put him out in front. <laughs> Stone Cold comes in, and Flair, even though never actually locking up with him, encouraged and helped Steve get to. Where he was going from behind the scenes, this is the one time where Flair is playing the role of an agent. He's behind the scenes, and he's pushing him, and he's telling him how to get over on the crowd. The territories are dead. WCW is about to die if we do this right. And then you go into the 83 weeks where WCW still has the grip. They're still number one. Yeah, but that's because of Scott Hall. I was about to say, to be fair, the only reason they held that was because of the NWO. Yeah. If if NWO didn't exist and WCW was still pulling its normal stories and storylines and and matches without mixing it up with the NWO, they never would have had top spot in the Monday Night Wars. They 
yeah, they never would have made it past 1997, to be honest with you. So you have Flair behind the scenes playing agent. So you're talking about somebody who in 1970 was coming out of camp with Vern Gagne, with motherfuckers like Ken Patera, (laughs) working his way up through the ranks, damn near dying, working programs with Dusty and Harley, Steamboat, the Briscoes, and the Funks. And now in the 90s, he's completely changed the landscape, and he's behind the scenes playing agent, pushing Stone Cold that you have lightning in a bottle right now. And also helping Vince give birth to Mr. McMahon, the greatest bad guy there ever was. Oh yeah, because uh, Vince Vince behind the scenes, a lot of people know or care. He, he's a ruthless, a ruthless uh, businessman, but he's one of the nicest people. And he will do anything for the business to get it over. It never occurred to him to play the bad guy. He yeah, that's not his personality. A lot of people forget that. That's not Vince's personality. Vince yeah. is Vince. If you look at Pro Wrestling and Illustrated and The Wrestler and all those magazines from the 80s, from like 1979 on, the only pictures you ever saw of Vince McMahon was with a microphone in his hand as the color commentator. Mm-hmm. Nobody acknowledged the fact that he actually owned the fucking WWF. Yeah, but that's the point. Is, Nobody is, did. Is the character of Mr. McMahon was such a far departure of actual personality that he had to be taught by the dirtiest player in the game how to be an asshole boss (laughs) and so behind the scenes you have rick flair both um what's the right word here because stone code at this point in time steve had already had 10 years in the business he's not a newbie he doesn't need to be taught but he's being groomed right you have behind the scenes you have one guy grooming both sides of the aisle to become the greatest watermark in wrestling history. You have Mr. McMahon versus Stone Cold, the blue-collar guy, versus the boss. Everybody wants to kick their boss's ass. Everybody wants to flip him off. And in the meantime, the four horsemen and the 16 titles and all that shit Ric Flair's like, woo, here's what you need to do. And Vince fucking listened to him. That's the reason, even though he's gone broke fucking like eight times since the 90s, Vince McMahon has kept Ric Flair afloat and made sure he is still styling and profiling. Ric Flair has given away more Rolex watches than you and I will ever have the opportunity to earn. <laughs> to afford. And, <laughs> and, and Vince McMahon kept that image going. Even during the Stone Cold run, whenever Flair wasn't in the ring, he was only the personality doing the GM thing and all of that, or the president of this side and, 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 and all that shit. Ric Flair was behind the scenes schooling to make sure not the demise of WCW, but he was smart enough to see the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. But he was able to walk everybody along that tie rope. Outside of Taker, he was able to take a lot of people under his wing and say, this is why we do this. 
and this is why we do this, and this is how we do that, so people see it, why we do this. He was the guy behind the scenes, along with Michael P.S. Hayes, who was driving that shit. And you're talking two old southern guys, two old wrestling guys, who changed New York to beat the NWO incarnation in WCW. And so this is the last of uh, Ric Flair's meaningful title runs. Whenever Stone Cold, uh, whenever Owen Hart broke Stone Cold's neck, yeah, uh, 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 Triple H was still under punishment because of the curtain call. Shawn Michaels was out of the game. There wasn't anybody really, so Vince was like, "Here you go, Rick. This is the last of his meaningful title." Gets okay, and, and it's probably the least meaningful because of the, fact, the least because of the fact right. that he is older in years. He uh, and and the only reason, but the only reason he's holding the title is because there was nobody else to put it on. There was nobody else believable to put the strap on. Stone Cold's on the sideline. Shawn Michaels is gone. Triple H is being punished. Hall and Nash are in fucking Georgia at the end of fucking you know WCW. So here you go. Here's now, number 15. Now, I hear fans. I hear fans. But there was this person. There was this person. I'm not saying there wasn't talent that could have become champion. I'm but could they have put it over? At, at the time. At, yeah, that's my point. At the time. Right. At the yeah. time frame, were they ready? Remember when we started this venture and we had a conversation about getting a belt too soon and you're not ready to carry the company? A lot of the that were in WWE yep. at the time when Flair held the title for the final time. <clears throat> there were people. You're talking Chris Benoit, Guerrero, all of these guys. They were there. Just, they just weren't ready yet. Soon. Yeah, just a little too soon, a year or two away. You know, let him carry the television ratings because Red Flair, what's the title, means ratings. And WCW were now kicking their ass. So it's okay to go ahead and do this kind of weak gimmick because nobody else is really the strong guy besides Taker, but he's now in the league of Andre and Dusty Rose. He doesn't need a belt to draw. Exactly. So, for the belt to have meaning... Well, and to be fair... Why, that's why you get the beginning of... Um, um, uh, fuck. What did they call themselves when it was Batista... And Triple H and Flair. Oh, uh, Evolution. So that's why you get the beginning of that. So that way you can usher in these next people who are believable outside of Undertaker and Stone Cold and The Rock. These are your six main title contain contenders. And it's only because Flair was able to bridge that gap. And and just an amendment to The Undertaker. Uh, the Undertaker did become one of those legendary statuses where he didn't acquire a, a a title but also mark was the type of guy he was such a a player in the business that he mm -hmm. nine times out of ten he didn't want the title if he, he was, was a leader in the locker room exactly. he wanted the show to work right he a lot of times where somebody would be like i think the title should go to taker he'd be like no no he didn't he didn't, he didn't the right time he didn't want to take the spotlight away from somebody else yeah, and because at that point in time, the ratings were so important. It was more important to go ahead and put the strap on Rick 
since Steve was on the sidelines, again, Triple H hadn't established himself yet, and, and he was being punished for the curtain call. Hall Nash are still under contract. WCW is closed at this point in time, actually. So Hall and Nash are sitting on the sidelines with their guaranteed contract, still getting paid by Turner. So what the fuck else do you do? So Ric Flair has the beginning of, or the end of, the old regional territory days in the early 80s. And then you begin with the national coverage of the late 80s, early 90s. And then you deal with the death of the territories and its only national media at the beginning of the 90s. And then the end of the Attitude Era, where people are on the shelf. You have one person, one person only, who's able to carry the weight of that, understand the gravity of that, keep the character alive and keep the company going in the right direction because the way he's able to work with everybody, again, we were returned to the, he could wrestle with a broomstick and put them over. And there's only one guy for that. But the discussion is which one is the most pivotal or the most important. You have the old NWA days, the WCW days, the WWF days. Which title run is most important? For me, again, I, I stand. I stand at the WWF. Uh, the, the other crossover ones, the first time him get yeah the the crossover yeah. first time the other the other ones were pivotal to Flair's career and growth, but the the crossover was literally like I said, it was not legitimate legitimizing uh, WWF as a major contender. And breaking the mold of of the territories, as you said, it was bringing a fledgling uh, competition to the forefront in WCW. It, because at that time, you're still you're still dealing with Saturday morning cartoons versus Friday night blood. Exactly. So to me, to me, that most pivotal uh, title title reign because only the man could be the man. To bring forward WCW, right. elevate WWE, and bring professional wrestling that much stronger into the forefront by simply winning one match and, and holding two belts. Whenever, whenever you're talking about one singular person who from 1970 to now, you're talking 50 years, one person who has an incredibly excitable adjective attached to their name. You say Ric Flair, the crowd says... Woo! There's only one guy. But I got a challenge for the wrestling world. I got a challenge for the wrestling world. Before before yep. we get uh, uh, Mr. Rudder's uh, choice of, uh, of legacy. I got a challenge. Uh-huh. Ric Flair was famous for saying the style and the profiling, but he was also famous for saying to be the man, you got to beat, beat the, the man. man. But my challenge to pro wrestling now is... Uh, Everything that has been that is important has been done by Ric Flair. So, what are you going to Definitely. do to beat the man? And, and without a doubt, I think that the most pivotal moment in the industry itself 
was the crossover. But as far as the most important run for Ric Flair was truly establishing to be the man, you got to beat the man, styling and profiling, wheeling and dealing, kiss stealing, jet plane riding, limousine riding. Woo! 1984 to 1988, the original rendition of The Four Horsemen, I think, is the reason the rest of everything else was able to work. Oh, without question. I mean, it, 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 like I, I maybe I misunderstood the question here. Um, the, the 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 most pivotal was the crossover in my mind, as far as yes. what it meant in the in the wrestling industry. But if we're talking about for Ric Flair himself, just himself, then I'm going to change my answer. I'm going to say the most pivotal was his first, because that's when he okay, learned they- what he could and could not do. Right, whenever he was able to prove to the NWA that he was the man. Not even. He, he proved to himself that he wasn't. Proved to himself right. that he learned, had to learn more about the game, become a better person in his craft. He learned from that. I'd say pivotally for his career, that was the most important. 78? 78. Okay, 78. 78, um, uh, definitely being able to... You know, have while you have that much ego and you have all of the promoters, you know, uh, uh, sticking their thumb up your ass to make sure that, you know, they, they all know that you know that we all know that you're the man from 78 to 81, he could have got, he could have crashed and burned. Very much so. There are times and, where he should have. And, and and by all accounts, from everybody else since then, he probably should have. Um, but he had the will and the way to be able to get around that and live the gimmick. And, and that's the thing about Flair. Whenever you look at the like thirty for thirty documentary on Flair, it, it is it, the first thing he'll tell you is it wasn't just a gimmick. I lived it. I was the man. I was Ric Flair. And while others tried to do it, the only other person who comes close to being that guy and he never had the, he never he never really had the need to go outside of his territory and do it everywhere else would be Jerry Lawler. That's fair. And um you know, I, I think those are two people, but we're focusing on, on Flair on this one. So I, I I say from, you know, 78 to 85, the beginning of the Horseman's first rendition and, and really doing the jet flying, <laughs> styling and profiling, by far the most important time in his career, the most important time in wrestling would be when he did the crossover. And his biggest contribution to wrestling would be that time behind the scenes helping Vinnie Mac and Steve. Uh, see, I, 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 I'll go with that. I'll, I'll, I'll agree on that. Uh, because the, the, biggest thing, the biggest thing about Ric Flair, and the hardest thing, the hardest thing to even mention about Ric Flair is, yeah, he's got 24 title reigns. 
He's got territory to territory. He's world travel, you know, and, and it, 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 there, there's no lie in the gimmick. Let's just put it that way. There's no lie right. in the gimmick. But the truest legacy to the nature boy Ric Flair above all others is what he left to, brought to and left to the business. He created, as much as we t- we had this conversation in the first episode of Blown Spot with Hulk Hogan, that Hulk Hogan brought wrestling to the forefront. He be- he made right. he Hulk Hogan made wrestling mainstream, but Ric Flair made professional wrestling legitimate. Ric Flair, yeah, is the- he did because he was able to cross over to the the separate styles. And combine them. Not even the separate styles people. and all that. Even even in the territory days, people still right. at at the, at the times that Flair came out, there were people who still looked at at uh, pro- professional wrestling, even in the territorial and independent circuit days, as kind of a carnival sideshow, something you went to see at a state fair. It was not to take seriously. It was not something that was career worthy for people. Flair changed that. And that, that brings me to, uh, and, I, and I mentioned this in our, our last blown spot, that the greatest American art form, and, and there isn't anything anybody can say, I understand jazz, I understand rock and roll and blues and everything, but the greatest American art forms from the beginning of the 1900s to present day is kayfabe and the lost art yeah. of it. And he was the last carrier of that torch. Yes, Even Taker has broken kayfabe now. Oh yeah. So. Oh yeah. You know, Everybody uh, in WWE has destroyed kayfabe, but you're absolutely yeah, right. You know, I, I think that that is the greatest American form of art that America has ever produced, and and the the fact that it's. Um, you know, the negative connotation, you know, with it being fake wrestling and, you know, is it a shoot or a work? Here's the biggest, here's the biggest question to ask yourself. If you don't know the facts, look back and watch the Montreal screw job, the last of kayfabe. <laughs> God, that was such a black eye. <laughs> that was such a black eye on the and business. That really was such a black eye you know, on the business. But you know, but still, it was the last of kayfabe. Like it was kayfabe on the way out the window, and the last people who were trying to hold on to it. But you know that was the split of the curtain. But you know what? It's it's not just an American thing. In fact, it's American ignorance to have to even worry about kayfabe. You know, when you think about it, like uh, back in the day before knew that it was it was all a complete work like they there were smarks that that thought that you know they knew how it worked and everything and they didn't but they thought they did you know and and people right. only americans only ignorant as americans that sit there and, and and nitpick and decide whether those punches were real or fake you go outside right. the united states of america to canada to mexico to japan to all points in between and they respected it for the art that it was. They didn't give a shit right. whether it was real or fake. They didn't give a shit if that that was really how uh, Tongo was in real life that that he portrayed in the ring. They didn't give two shits. They respected the athleticism. They respected 
the work uh-huh. ethic. They respected the character. They respect to the point that you would get golf claps and silence of appreciation and just all the things that you would expect from any type of fucking theater, you know, or, or whatever. Right. Pro yeah. wrestling has gotten in every single place on this planet, except the United States, because we're the arrogant fuckers that have to turn around and be like, he didn't really punch him. You know? <laughs> right. We have to dissect everything. And, and, and whenever you learn behind the scenes, if you're a real historian of how everything works, Ric Flair learned how to punch the way he punched because Jack Briscoe said, here, here's a string. Hang it from your curtain. Hit it as hard as you can without making that string move. That's kind of similar to how I was taught. I was taught uh, uh, punch a brick wall. If you feel... And then you have, then you, then you have guys like Danny Davis and um, Dutch Mantel who punched a thumbtack without cutting their hand. Punch it as hard as you can without cutting your, your knuckle. That, that, that's, again, that's how I was taught. Punch a brick wall. If you don't feel the wall, it was too soft. If you hurt your hand, it was too right. hard. Right. Feel the wall, but don't feel it. Mm-hmm. That is the art of kayfabe. And that's, 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 and, and people look at me like I'm, I'm crazy, and, and I hear all kinds of counter discussions and everything, and I'm like, you just don't understand. The, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't want to pull the curtain back and tell the kids Santa Claus isn't real. Right. I, what I want you to understand is the fact that <laughs> these motherfuckers, until 2003, basically, whenever the internet broke, you didn't know if you were smart or not. Unless you were smart. You know, and, and you get Part of the fun of being a professional wrestling fan, I will give this much, this fairness. Part of the fun of being a professional wrestling fan before the the, the break of kayfabe uh, was the fact of speculation. It, it was part of the fun. Right. It was part of the fun. I, I won't say, I won't deny and say it wasn't. People who pushed and pursued so hard kayfabe had to break. You ruined the illusion. You are the person who turned around, threw a gift at your kid and was said, it? I bought this because Santa couldn't afford it. It's just like, you know, those magician shows who show how the trick is actually done. Right. Duh. You we never all know. You have to be on stage and do it in front of people, so now you have to show the secret. That's it. So you, you know, that, duh. You get we, famous, you cocksucker. We, you know, we know David Copperfield didn't make the Statue of Liberty disappear. We know it's a trick. We know he didn't fly across the Grand Canyon. But can't we enjoy yeah. the illusion? <laughs> and I, I think that's a good that, that's a good wrap up to the conversation you know at the end of the day do you have to know how the trick was done to appreciate the outcome do you know do you have to know that the guys drank a beer behind the curtains before they went out and drew color do you have to know how the cage was built before they went out there and raked their faces across the cage because they knew where the soft point were or where you don't attack the cage. Do you really have to know that to appreciate the art? Because you don't have to know how Johnny Depp becomes fucking 
uh, and whatever. Scissor hands. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to know how he does that. You just appreciate it. So why can't you do it with this? Well, see, I'll, I'll counter that point. Maybe you do have to know. Maybe for your own satisfaction, you need to know. I understand that sometimes you just need to know shit. But do you have to ruin it for others? There you go. Right? Do you, do you, and again, that's the conversation of do you have to tell all the kids Santa Claus is fake? Like, can't you just keep it to your fucking self for a minute and let the show go on? And, uh, and, and again, back to our original component here. You're talking from 1970. It's now 2020. Ric Flair is going to be on Monday Night Raw next week. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's his last appearance. It's already booked. It's his last appearance being on a live wrestling show. Until he gets broke again. Until Charlotte gets her next push, whatever. But 50 years, here's this one guy who won seminal uh, uh, moment, one to the next, one handoff to the next, one legend to the next, teaching people, Vinnie Mac, Stone Coat, teaching them how to carry that forward to keep the show going, coming in and being the bullshit GM coming in and being the bullshit fucking co-owner of the WWF versus the WWE. Now he's in fucking cahoots with Linda McMahon. All of this shit behind the scenes, him and Michael PSAs, along with Jerry Lawler and, and Ross, you're talking like five or six of the most important figures ever in the history of a true... American art form. Mm-hmm. And the last of their kind. That's the deal. It's the last of their kind. Whatever happens next is only be, uh, is only going to happen because somebody's interpreting what Steve tells them to do or what Vince tells them to do or what Rick tells them to do. They're only interpreting it. The only people who have done it are either dead or those three or four guys. And that's what makes the conversation really cool. And I, I agree with you that the most seminal moment, the most important moment, was him crossing over from Georgia Championship Wrestling, WCW, carrying the strap, winning the WWF title at the time, and then coming back, getting a WWE title. But that time in 1991, after you know the 23 years he had spent in the business, probably the most important time ever that we've seen as far as uh, pro wrestling goes. You know, absolutely, absolutely. There, there has never been somebody like the Nature Boy Ric Flair. There will never be anybody like the Nature Boy Ric Flair. And quite honestly, it had he not screwed himself with his in personal opinion uh screwed himself with his retirement match with Shawn Michaels where he promised that he was done and not even a year later he appeared on uh what was it impact <laughs> wrestling he just couldn't help himself man he just couldn't help him that took away some of his legacy and his legacy had that not happened had that not happened he would have been the absolute God of professional wrestling, in my but opinion. But even with that going on, 
who else could a modern day fan point to and say who else besides him? Oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not saying, but he would have been, you know, he would have been he would have been the embodiment of fucking uh, Kurt Henning. He would have been yeah perfect. And yeah, he would have been. But outside of that that minor thing, there is still nobody, is. nobody, including people I idolize. There is nobody from from the day he was born to the day to today. There is nobody who could beat the man because there is nobody but the man. And he will always be the man. I mean. He's he's close to that time, people, and twenty years from now, you're still going to remember. Woo! <laughs> and, for, <laughs> and for that one, guys, that that's going to end us here. Thank you very much for joining us. You'll get all intros on the uh, outro video. Till then, we will catch you on the next uh, blown spot where I am actually working on a surprise guest. I have one. I have one. And it's not just a local right. it's not just a local independent guy either. Oh no. Cool. I'm working cool. on Snitsky. Oh really? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we may That's be sitting down having a conversation with the green tooth monster himself. Fuck yeah. That's what's up. <laughs> so guys All right, folks, stay man. tuned for that. Until one. next time, man. See y'all on uh Blown Spot, man. Hey guys, it's Chris from Realm of the Mist Entertainment. If you enjoyed this video, please hit that thumbs up button. Like, share, comment, subscribe. Check out all the other great podcasts that can be found on Realm of the Mist Entertainment's YouTube channel or our sister channel, Sounds Dicey Gaming, for all your tabletop needs. And if you prefer your podcasts in audio-only format, check out Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. To our Patreon supporters, we thank you very, very much. And if you're interested in being a Patreon supporter, please go over to patreon.com slash realm of the mist and just a dollar a month gives you exclusive content and helps our channel out greatly. Guys, again, thank you very much for joining us and we will see you on the next episode.